This is episode 72 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Mother's Unpaid Work. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work the advice show where we talk about work-related issues or challenges and some ideas and suggestions for how to deal with them. I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and the host of the show, and I thank you for joining me in my quest to make our workplaces better and more welcoming to everyone. Let's do this. One of the fun things about having a podcast is that you get to invite your heroes onto the show. And I am so honored today to have Ann Crittenden with us. I'll introduce her, although I should say first, although I'm a huge fan and I'm very proud to share her name, I'm not a relative. Uh, But I'll introduce her. Ann is an award-winning journalist, author, and lecturer. Her latest book, If You've Raised Kids, You Can Manage Anything, received critical praise and was featured in People magazine. Her previous book, and this is how I got to know her, was The Price of Motherhood, and it garnered widespread media attention and was named one of the New York Times Notable Books of the Year in 2001. She was a reporter for the New York Times for eight years, writing on a broad range of economic topics. She initiated numerous investigative reports and was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. She also wrote for Newsweek, Fortune Magazine, and was a visiting lecturer for MIT and Yale, and an economics commentator for CBS News. She's a native of Dallas, Texas, a graduate of Southern Methodist University and Columbia University School of International Affairs. She completed all her work except dissertation for a PhD in modern European history from Columbia. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and has served on the board of the International Center for Research on Women. She's married, has a son, and lives in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, and thanks for all the kind words. I might add, the book had a new uh, edition in 2011, and it's still in print, so Price of Motherhood is still out there, to my delight. Yes, it's just a fabulous book, Anne. I just have to say, when I read it, Oh, it's probably been, maybe I got it shortly after the new edition came out, so 2011. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just read it with my mouth open most of the time, I think. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I was. It was really surprising to read about kind of the systemic things that, that are in place to keep women uh, do, raising children for free. I think your shock echoed mine, which is why I, I started to write the book. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, this is a different ball game than I thought it was. It really is. And as you, yeah. s- you, your book really stacks up the evidence bit by bit by bit that after a while, you're just like, stop, please. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> amazing. It really is. It really is wow. amazing. So I want to, for the listeners, I want to read the whole title. So the, the title is The Price of Motherhood, Why the Most Important Job in the World is Still the Least Valued. That's it. And I was surprised when I was rereading the book recently to realize that you had written about domestic labor for the first issue of Ms. Magazine. So you've been writing about this topic for a long time. At that time, I was a young, unmarried, no kids, 
junior reporter for Newsweek magazine, and Ms. got started, and I knew some of the editors, and they asked me to do it because I was focusing on economics, economic writing, about, you know, business and finance, that kind of thing. And I, so I just tabulated all the, you know, you've seen those accounts of what all the, the work a, a parent does and what it's worth by the hour and all that adds up to these big salaries, which nobody earns. And it's kind of an academic exercise, but it was fun. And that was one of the first uh, articles that talked about that. But I really didn't get it because I had, I was like, oh, we don't have any problems. Women are starting to get good jobs. They're starting to have this. Uh, you know, liberation and all that. But when I had a child several years later, a number of years later, I thought, uh-oh, this is it. This is where the barriers are now. They're not where we thought they were, where they used to be, you know, getting a job, getting promoted, that sort of stuff. It's in the work world. It's now, when you have a child, the thing is going to hit you. It's the way the system really just doesn't, respect or give any financial recognition of that work. So in the book, I really set out to show, number one, it really is the most important wealth-creating job in the world. It creates workers, <laughs> citizens, people who make the, the economy run. So it's a huge wealth-creating job. And number two, there's no recognition, especially in the United States, that this has anything to do with the economy. So you just virtually get you really do get punished for doing spending a lot of time raising kids and somebody in business week wrote a big essay on it and they said you know welcome to america where having a child is the worst financial decision you can make (laughs) yeah it's 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 very distressing so i was very enamored with your book and posted a review of it on my website and i said I must have had a fit of peak up, but I said this book should be required reading for anybody who purchases one of those wedding or you know, those wedding magazines. Because <laughs> we, I just don't think I don't think this information is out there, for and that people have fully absorbed it. Yeah, well, you don't think about it when you fall in love. You don't think too much about it. You fall. You want a child. It's the most loving thing anybody ever does. Is that want to have a child and you don't care about that you don't think about the money part but it's not just the cost of the baby I'm not talking about that I'm talking no. about if you are uh, a working woman and you scale back or stop out a while out of the labor market to have the baby the costs are enormous just enormous and, and we need to do something about it it's not hopeless it's there other countries have done way better um so I was trying to call attention to a giant kind of economic social problem that affects, you know, most women. And anybody else who's raising young children, it could be the, the father who's the primary caregiver, much more rarely, or it could be even people who are in early childhood uh, professions. Anything having to do with young children, <laughs> you, really, you really get punished. <laughs> Financially, I should say. Yeah, the, the term, or the phrase that kept coming to my mind as I was reading about it was if a woman or a man decides to stop out of their career and devote themselves to raising children for a while, they've really put a knife in their economic future 
especially if divorce awaits them. And we just, you know, you know, we don't talk about that. We don't, we, we always get all this night, oh, the sacrifice, right? And it's like, well, <laughs> this, is, this is a really risky thing that you're doing. Well, the divorce thing is amazing. I really worked hard on those. I wrote three chapters on what the deal might be, you know, what happens. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, get a divorce in financial terms. If you are the caregiver, primary caregiver. And I spent way more than a year researching that. And there's a lot of good research on it, particularly by uh, women in law schools, law professors. Oh, really? I see. uh, Who are people who are mothers, and they've really examined it. And I was really excited to popularize all that. And I got this letter or email. The book was read all around the country, but somebody reported to me that it was being read in a book group in Atlanta. And the women said, let's skip the divorce chapters because we're all married. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. Right. Honey, look, it could happen to you. Definitely. Prepared. Yeah, definitely. But what was really staggering is if you're not in a community property state, the law considers all the income his or, you know, the breadwinner claims all the income. There is no legal right to income sharing if you're not if you didn't earn it, unless it's community property state, and that's they're better, but half the states aren't, roughly. So, you know, this is pretty grim, and it, we need to change these laws. They were written by men, you know, male legislators, and child support laws, the same, all that kind of stuff is very out of date when you're talking about a, a marriage between two equal people. Mm-hmm. It isn't equal financially. Much as you may agree it is, but when you get a divorce, the law steps in and then it isn't. Those chapters on divorce were very eye-opening, especially for child support. You just give very many specific examples where, like I say, the evidence just keeps piling up. (laughs) One of my favorite stories is an Italian journalist was reading this, and she told me she was poking her husband in bed saying, listen to this, listen to this. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, it's just some feminist thing. And she said, no, no, she has the facts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another area that I was very surprised at, if you can talk a little bit about, is the tax laws. You're talking about, like, if you're in business, you can deduct expenses, you know, different travel expenses, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're a working mother, you cannot deduct child care expenses. Right. Which are number one crucial to your being able to work, but they're not deductible. Yeah. So that's a complete, you know, discrimination, really. And one guy did a major book looking at the biases in the tax code that are that go against women. He talks about separate filing of federal income tax, mm-hmm. which is generally the rule in almost all other advanced countries. People are working, earning money, file separately. Here it's a joint thing, which means... If the woman is the caregiver and she's working, that income she brings in is taxed at the couple's highest rate. So you're going to pay the higher rate on those dollars that she's bringing in. If you file separately, they'd both be in a lower bracket. So that alone accounts for many, many decisions made in families. Oh, well, it just doesn't pay to work. So the woman stays home. They don't pursue their career. They don't get any of that. They don't bring in family income. And 
I really have been shocked myself because in the last few years, since I actually even this 2011 version of the book, we have lost our, our ground as one of the democracies, advanced countries where women aren't working. We're in the lowest six of like the 26 most developed economies for working mothers, working married women. This just put, this pushes people out of the job market. That's what struck oh. me is that yeah. because of those tax laws, the couple makes this calculation, and yeah. the result is, oh, it's okay, right? It's okay, and, and so there's all these forces that are encouraging women to stay home and work for free. That's right. That's right. And people tend to take this like, oh, this is inevitable. This is the way it is. No, no. This is this is the way it was designed, and it can be changed. And I'm, I'm always saying, you know, get out there, read the book, and you can change it, things. <laughs> One interesting thing I heard recently, though, you know, there's a very well-known uh, Democratic pollster named Celinda Lake, and she has a lot of very constantly current polling information. And she's found out that people think issues like child support or these family law issues or even maternity leave, which parental leave, which is so important, people tend to think of them as state-level issues and not national issues. Hmm. So we don't have a lot of pressure to change it. And, and what we need most of all is a nation, national legislation on this stuff. But it's very hard to get. Another big shocker for me was this correlation between being poor when you're old and being a mother. And can you, for our listeners, can you put that in a nut, nutshell for us? I can, but I want to say I looked that up because it's a really good question. Um, things have been improving, actually, mm. for older women. Uh, something like 9% of older women are in poverty versus like 11 and a half uh, 12 years ago. Or ten years ago, I see. So there's been improvement, and that's also versus five percent for men. So five percent of older men are in poverty. Nine percent of older women. Uh, partly that is also due to the fact that we live longer. Mm-hmm. So, but it is also a, a function of women not having social security credit yeah. for the years they spent child rearing. I will say though, the worst problem for age is for children. Our child poverty is 18%. Oh, boy. And that has not, we've not made any progress in the last 15, maybe 20 years on that. So the problem really is single mother's uh, Mm -hmm. income. That's why minimum wage is so important. It would really help a lot of single mothers to have a a decent minimum wage. And that would do a lot for child poverty. So that is the bigger issue. But the fact is, as I said in the book, and you're probably referring to it, having a child is probably the single biggest risk factor for poverty, either at any age, really, because the children do require a lot of care, and they don't, and it has to come at the expense of paid work, right. unless we have good policy, like parental leave and other things. You ask another question, if I can go on. Mm-hmm what do they do differently elsewhere? And mm-hmm. it, it's just completely different picture. They don't have child poverty like that at all. And part of it is 
these fabulous policies and enabling mothers to stay in the workforce if they want to. They have child allowances, a, a stipend that you get paid when the child is one, two years old. This is all over Europe. You get paid parental leave for a certain number of months, which we do not have on a national basis. Actually, just to this month, this last week, they're gonna, there's going to be paid leave for three months for all federal workers. That is a big step forward. Uh-huh. So that's just happening now. But that's federal workers. That's not anyone in the private sector, Yeah, which is, you know, tens of millions more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, there are a lot of policies that can prevent child poverty that have to do with helping people out who are raising kids in this economy. You talk quite a bit about Social Security, too, and that got me thinking about are there creative potential solutions with sharing uh, a primary earner's Social Security, or I don't know, do you have thoughts about how that might be structured? Well, I think you do share it if you've been married 10 years or more. Mm -hmm. Both parties, you know, you can share into the other partners. uh, You get a credit for the other partners the higher wage earners Social Security eventually. The best thing, I think, is to have a pension, a basic pension that everyone can have, and that's Mm -hmm. what they do in Europe, Germany. You earn a pension by being an adult, you know? Uh And and here, you earn a pension by being a full-time salaried worker. And that's how you get your pension. So if you are more than, let's say, five years out of the workforce, you really reduce your pension. I can see it in my, in my own case in a big way, you know. Uh, my husband's pension is more than twice mine, uh-huh. Social Security. Right. And I worked a lot of years, but I did not work the full 35 years to get my full Social Security. Mm-hmm. And so you do pay a, a real price if you step out of the labor market for a few years, which is it's just a matter of law. We don't have to do it that way. That's why when they, they talk about cutting Social Security, I think the proper answer is, no, we need to reform it mm-hmm. and make it a basic Social Security uh, stipend and not penalize people for staying, for raising kids. Because there they are, as I said, creating future workers, and they're not getting any credit for it. Right. Yeah. Or my best way of putting that is your nanny. A nanny will get Social Security credits, but you don't if you're mm-hmm. the mother. Mm-hmm. Without a nanny. <laughs> right. With or without a nanny. You know, I didn't ask you this question um, before, but, you know, I'm often struck by how different the U.S. is from Europe in these types of family issues. Yeah. Do you have it's any... Huge, isn't it? it's you, yeah, it's so... St- and do you have any theory about why that is, why the U.S. is you so do. different? You bet I do. It's a great <laughs> question. <laughs> I actually spend a lot of time in France. I love France. Mm-hmm. I studied French history, and I'm really a Francophile. And now here they are. You're asking it right at this moment where they're all out in the street striking. There's a general strike. You cannot get anywhere. <laughs> right. People are screaming because there was a proposed pension reform. Well, one reason they're screaming is that they do have the best pensions in the world, and they don't have poverty in old age, you know, and people mm. are very afraid of losing their pensions or having to take a real hit on it. Why mess up something they think that's great? Of course, their answer is because it's going to go into the red in a horrible way, and they do need to reform it in many ways. But 
they feel they've earned it and they feel entitled more than Americans do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they also, I, I might add on the French thing, they really have a belief that if you get out in the street, you can make something change. You can make it happen. They're way more aggressive about demonstrations and they call them manifestations Mm -hmm. and they get out there. I think America's maybe slightly learning that because we've done a lot of that lately. Lately. Women's Mm -hmm. March, you know, the Women's March was pretty powerful. It was huge. So they do believe in that, but they also feel, they also have a much more uh, friendly attitude toward government. They don't think it's, the government needs to step, to be a kind of safety net. They believe in those social insurance programs. They believe mm-hmm. in the welfare state. That is part of what they think is civilized, modern civilization. And that works well. Americans mix this up. With social, they think socialism is a bad thing because it's not capitalism or whatever. These are capitalist countries, extremely capitalist countries, that have a very solid social safety net, social Mm -hmm. welfare. And we just haven't been able to get it in our heads that we can have both. Right. We see it as a pendulum. Yeah. In fact, one big difference is that the European businesses have accepted this. They don't pay for everybody's health insurance. Health insurance is single payer. It's kind of a Medicare for all thing Mm -hmm. in most European countries. There's some private, but basically business does not have that burden of taking care of people's medical insurance. They just believe there's a big role for government to play alongside, and businesses stick to the business, you know. So it's pretty interesting difference in, in basic attitudes, I think. I just read a big article on somebody who moved to Finland, talking about it in Finland, which is a very business-friendly country, but a very big social welfare program, including mm-hmm. very solid family policies. And I might add, the pension thing is one thing they're trying to change over there and make it a little less sweet. Some people retire in their 50s, you know, Mm -hmm. which is, really, you can't afford that. But nobody is challenging the family policies of child allowances, generous uh, maternity leaves, paternity leaves, you know, up to six months, uh, partial paid. They don't challenge the fair social security. There's a lot of acceptance that we just haven't come around to. I'll say one thing that it used to be the continental Europe was different from us, but also UK and Canada and Australia, the kind of Anglophone countries. But in the last 10, 15 years, the English speaking countries, except for us, have moved more toward that European model. Oh, that's really so interesting. Now, yeah, it's really interesting. We're really now the outlier. Huh. We're just, yeah. We really are. And I think it has to do with gridlock in Washington and, and the fact that business now is completely unregulated and nobody's really telling business, hey, you've got to have paid parental leave. It's not going to kill you. Yeah, I, I think sometimes we just don't know any better. I had my first child in Belgium and, you know, oh, it was... You, di- you know better than me what, what I'm talking about. Well, in small ways, right? Not in big policy ways. But yeah, just as a new mother, the things that were available to me um, from nursing care to getting the baby weighed to being off work for many months and the care in the hospital, a week in the hospital, you know, all these things are just like, oh, sure, of course that's how it works here. And then when you come back to the United States, it's like, hmm. Very capitalist country. 
most conservative country. And it was a long yeah. time ago. I mean, it was almost 25 years ago that I had my first child. So who I don't know how things are now, but I think sometimes in the U.S. we just don't think, oh, it could be any different. You know what? I think another big reason I just didn't mention, because you're asking really cool new questions in a way. In Europe, I think there is much more, like, solidarity of what the country is. It's changing a lot with immigration. But they'll say, okay, the Swedes are more Swedish, or the French are more French, or the Germans are more German. As I said, this is really changing fast. But they think of these policies as helping themselves. And I think our legacy of racial, you know, this horrible racism that we've had in our history, a lot of, shall I say, white people think about these policies as helping other people. Oh, right. Remember all the demonization of the welfare mom and all that. Yeah. That welfare mom was not white right. in those comments. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think people say, well, I don't want those undeserving people to get all these benefits. And I'm paying for them. You know, they don't think, oh, hey, wait a minute, you're going to get them. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's going to help everybody and change just the well-being of the whole country. We have a harder time thinking we are that united, I think, mm-hmm. that one of, of a people, you know? you think that, I really think that's true, and I think there have been some books written about that as well. Well, what do, you, what do you see as having changed since the book came out, and do you see, see things on the horizon that are encouraging or discouraging? I think it's pretty encouraging, actually. Oh, good. We can end on that, we can end on that note. Mm-hmm. Uh, one big change, and that's not to be sneezed at, is, the, is I think we've had a huge cultural change that 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, women were hiding pictures of their babies on their desk. Uh-huh. They weren't putting them out because they didn't want to be looked at as, I'm take, not taking this job seriously. You know, sure. now people brag about their kids. Mm-hmm. We have women running for president who talk about their kids. Actually, one or two of them are now talking about, we need better early education, we need mm-hmm. universal child care, you know, that kind of thing. So the, the conversation has moved that mothers are serious people and mothers can be capable people. Mm-hmm. Raising a kid is a job requiring a lot of skills. I think that's more acceptable now, even in America. Uh, you may know New Zealand had a president, they had an unmarried 37-year-old woman who had a baby. And she said, oh, when I get time, we're going to get married. But, you know, nobody betted it on. Mm-hmm. She's, she's the leader of the country. Mm-hmm. So, and we've had people, I believe, who've gone on the house, on the floor of the house, new representatives nursing their babies. So things have really improved in terms of how we respect mothers in the public sphere, I think. So that's huge. And then we have had more laws change on the state level for parental parental leave, and that's just a major advance. It hasn't been national, because we just think can't get too much passed nationally, mm-hmm. but about six states now have paid leave, and D.C., um, California, big states, California, yeah. New York, New Jersey. About 10 states now have paid sick leave, which is, you know, can you imagine? If we don't have a national paid sick leave. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just sitting. Of course, I live in California, so you know I have a skewed view. But I'm yeah. thinking, six states California's have paid leave. Community state too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it beats Oklahoma, I must say. 
But um, so that's a big one. I mean, that is moving. We also have more child care, early education programs around the country. Way more kids are now, you know, three-year-olds, four-year-olds getting early education, mm. which is the good start in life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's That's improved. So, you know, I kind of tend to be an optimist on these things that... It's just so slow. Yeah, <laughs> it right. It's so much slower than I ever thought it would be. But that's true of a lot of different things. You know, I think there's just so much pent-up demand for some change in America right now. Yeah. On your website, you talk about um, some initiatives that are underway. I wonder if you want to share with the listeners what those might be and how they could get involved. Well, how do you get involved? I don't. I would just... Start in your neighborhood. Mm. <laughs> Why do you just talk to people in your situation? One of the biggest messages I tried to convey was that if you've got this problem of having trouble balancing work and family, or you know, affording your early your small child, or mm-hmm. paying for the childcare, that type of thing, this isn't just your problem. You're not alone. This is a giant social problem. Mm-hmm. And if all these other people have it, don't complain don't just say it's me and I don't dare complain it's not complaining it's social criticism you know? mm-hmm. and you can do something about it I think that's another thing Americans sort of want to say I'm going to suck it up I can do this by myself you know I'm a good strong individual mm-hmm. but that's kind of denying yourself the community of like-minded people that together you can make some change well, that's the main point I really want to make. It's so interesting that you mentioned that. A woman, I don't know if you're familiar with these websites called Next Door. So they're kind of neighborhood websites. And a woman uh-huh. posted on there last week. And basically, it was just three or four long paragraphs about I'm a single mom working full time and I, I'm not making it. I can't get everything done that I need to get done. How Do people have suggestions for, like, how you handle oh this my, kind of well, life? thing she should do is find <laughs> six, six other people mm-hmm. in the same boat, and maybe they together can figure out in their city, in their town, something they could do to change it, mm-hmm. because that's where change does occur. And, and, and it is occurring on the state level and the city level. They're much more responsive on those levels than they are nationally now. So, yeah, you can make a difference, I think. Yeah, it was very interesting. She got a lot of responses, and a lot of people were sharing their stories, too. And, yeah, it was... They ought to start meeting. Uh-huh, right? <laughs> yeah. doing yak-yak on Internet. Just get together in somebody's living room. Mm-hmm. I really mean that. It, I, I was talking to a lot of female legislatures around the country when I did this book, and they made the point that, that if they get 15 de- dedicated people who are pressing them, they're not just pushing a button, you know, saying, I support this. But they're pressing on an issue. They pr- they have a cockroach theory. They said for every one, there's probably a thousand out there that yeah. aren't coming up. So they will respond. They listen to that. And it's even bigger if it's the local government, the city government, or state legislature. Anyway, I have to go now. But it has really been fun, and I hope... Uh, I think you're doing a great job here with this program. Good. Thank you so much, Anne, for coming on this show and also for the book that you wrote, which I I think is so really important. So thanks again. All right. Thank you. 
That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. If you have a problem at work that you would like to submit to the show, you can do that at my website, discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. Spelling matters. Anyway, send in your issue. We'll treat it with confidentiality and respect and see if we can give you some tips or tools. You can also sign up for my mailing list or The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, as well as get information about training programs, books for sale, individual consulting sessions, and all kinds of articles and jokes and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday, so tune in so you can hear more about coping with trouble at work.